The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's episode is a very special episode, one that you guys have requested over and over and over for us to cover. And so we are finally going to cover a pretty infamous case. This is the murder of Teresa Hallbach. And the episode is entitled Beyond Reasonable Doubt, the murder of Teresa Hallbach. And when this is all said and done, you guys can decide for yourselves if this is beyond reasonable doubt or not. Yeah, and it's kind of be kind of a weird one, too, because I already know the story. Like, this is one of the few stories that Chris actually knows. Whoa, freaky. <laughs> On November 3rd, 2005, Teresa Hallbach's parents grew concerned when they hadn't heard from their daughter in a few days. The 25-year-old photographer was reported missing in to the Calumet County Sheriff's Department in Wisconsin. Teresa was last seen three days earlier on October 31st, 2005. Authorities traced back her steps on that Halloween day. Teresa had been taking pictures for Auto Trader magazine, and police were stunned to learn that her last appointment on October 31st was at the residence of a man named Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery, a man in his mid-40s, was released from prison just two years earlier with the assistance of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Most of you probably know at least something about this case. And, you know, we've talked a couple times about how when you watch Making a Murderer on Netflix, that it's a very one-sided perspective. And so I'm hoping to give you both sides of the perspective um, and not... You know, just a, not the prosecution side, not the defensive side, but just the facts, and we can yeah, go from there. This is one of those shows that Gina and I kind of binged whenever, whenever it was quarantine season, right? And yeah, you could tell definitely from the biased report. Like there was so much bias in that reporting. Well, and so many things left out yeah. because when the first time I watched Making a Murderer, I was like, "Oh my god, this is horrible. This man is innocent." Right. I'm not saying that I think he's innocent or I think I'm guilt or I think he's guilty, but there definitely was a lot of information not shared in that documentary. And so I did a deep dive in the research as deep as I possibly could. And hopefully we'll get the whole story. And the other thing that's going to differ from our story is this, the title of the story does not say Stephen Avery at all, right. because that should not be the focus and who gets lost in all of this is Teresa Hallbach. So I really want to focus on her um, throughout most of this story. So I'm going to start by talking about Teresa. Teresa Marie Hallbach was born on March 22, 1980 in Kakuna, Wisconsin. Teresa graduated from Hilbert High School in 1998. She earned her degree in photography from UW Green Bay, and she graduated summa cum laude. Teresa was an entrepreneur. She started her own business called Photography by Teresa. She was a member of the St. John's Sacred Parish and served as the volleyball coach for St. John's Sacred Parish School. She was a loving, vibrant woman who enjoyed traveling abroad, spending time with her family, and singing karaoke. 
one of the seventh grade volleyball players that Teresa coached was her very own little sister. Teresa is the daughter of Thomas and Karen Hallbach. And so this is something I knew I learned when researching for this case, and it's a little weird. So Karen was married to Richard Hallbach, with whom she had Teresa and her two brothers. And Richard had a very unexpected sudden death in 1988. Following that, Karen married his brother, Thomas Hallbach. Thomas and Karen went on to have two daughters of their own. And so her little sisters are also kind of her cousins. Yeah. It's just, there's a couple little bizarre, weird family things throughout this story. And that was just one I had never realized before. Um, It's maybe not significant, but just interesting fact. Teresa was an amazing sister who adored her siblings and loved them very much. She and her siblings were raised on a dairy farm in rural Wisconsin. Teresa was happy and a loving person who enjoyed listening to the Beatles and no doubt. A friend of Teresa Hallbach states that in the weeks before her death, Teresa was getting phone calls from an unknown number and that they were harassing in nature. According to this friend, Teresa shrugged them off as a mere annoyance, refusing to answer the calls. So she obviously knew the phone number. I mean, they didn't know who it was, but Teresa did and was avoiding those calls. According to a co-worker, she also told them that she had been out to photograph pictures for a client October 10th. And she became disturbed when the client answered the door wearing nothing but a towel. This client was a man named Stephen Avery, who lived on a salvage yard with several of his family members. This is like a 40-acre property, mostly salvage yard, but it's got some trailers and a house on it. His parents live there, his sister and her kids live there, and I think two of his brothers. On October 30th, 2005, Teresa joined several of her family members to celebrate her grandfather's birthday, which was actually on Halloween. She spent the day with her family and siblings, and that night, Teresa joined her family in milking the cows on the farm. She then joined her sisters at her parents' home to watch Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which was one of her favorite television shows. She left her parents' house around 10 o'clock that night, and it was the last time her parents would see her alive. So now that we know a little bit about Teresa, let's talk about Stephen Avery, because this story starts way before Teresa was even born, really. Stephen Avery, who was a client of Teresa's, was born on July 9th, 1962 to Alan and Dolores Avery. Alan owned a successful business called Avery Salvage. Stephen has two brothers, Chuck and Earl, and a sister named Barbara. Stephen went to school in nearby Mishicot and in Manitowoc, where he struggled in school. And according to his mother, he was, quote, well, he was in a school that was for, quote, slower kids, end quote. His IQ was determined to be near 70, so he did show some borderline mental impairment. The entire Avery family can be described as poorly educated. And I'm not saying that to to insult the Avery family, but I think it's important that you kind of have to understand the players in this really well, because when we get into some more details, it's going our way of thinking is not going to be the same as theirs and there's going to be some things that you're like why would they do that well they 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 don't necessarily have 
the same mental faculties and education that a lot of people do. In 1981, at the age of 18, Stephen entered the Northern Frontier Bar on October 20th while it was closed. He burglarized the same bar again on November 6th and 8th, this time with a friend. During these three robberies, Avery took change, a toolbox, and merchandise. Additionally, the bar owner stated in his complaint that there was significant damage done during the burglaries. So for these crimes, Stephen was arrested and he was sentenced to two years in the county jail. Of this, he served 10 months. Upon his release, Stephen was caught speeding several times. I told you I did a deep dive. I like judicied his entire criminal record. Um, it's not judici in Wisconsin, though, but I forget what it's called. Um, in 1982, Stephen met a single mother named Lori Matheson. Lori's child's father was not in the picture, so Stephen said that he just stepped up to play the role of dad. The two married July 24, 1982. Shortly after they married, Stephen and Lori were expecting a child of their own. In September of 82, though, Stephen faced a misdemeanor charge of excessive noise after driving past a concert in a park and blaring his horn to make a scene several times. So there's a concert going on in the park, and he's not just driving by and making a lot of noise. Like, he's purposely doing it to disrupt this concert. Like, you got to know who you're dealing with here. Sounds like an ass. Yeah, pretty much. So later in that same month, he gets in trouble again. And this time, he and his friend are in his salvage yard, and they're messing around, and they decide to soak the family cat, not like a stray, this was the family pet, in oil and gasoline, and threw it into the bonfire. That's a psychopath. Right. If I've ever heard one. Right. Now, in Making a Murderer, they kind of gloss over this as, oh, I was a kid hanging out with the wrong people. and No, he's married with a stepchild and another child on the way. Right. I mean, yes, he's like 20, but still, like, this is not a teenager doing stupid shit. This, yeah, this isn't teenaged angst and being... This is a grown man with kids. Right. And takes their family cat and burns it alive. Stephen was sent back to jail until August of 1983 because of the animal cruelty charge. And so he actually missed the birth of his first biological daughter because he was in jail. Stephen later said of his first two incarcerations, quote, I was young and stupid and hanging out with the wrong people, end quote. I mean, the burglaries at 18... Maybe, I mean, I'm not going to say it's an excuse, but maybe, but really you're, you're more, married with a kid on the way and you're burning a cat for fun. The burglary is more plausible at that. Like I can understand 18 being something like that. Not the whole burning of a family cat though. Right. It's just kind of sickening. Yeah. It's important to know, you know, like I said, that he was 20 years old, married with a stepchild and a pregnant wife, and he's setting a cat on fire for his own entertainment. In December of 1983, the Manitowoc Herald Times reported that a vehicle owned by Stephen was engulfed in flames inside of his garage. The only reason that I bring this up, I have no idea if it was an accident or if it was on purpose. Like, I have no idea. But there's already a pattern of fire setting. 
And then you also have animal cruelty. And those two things are linked to the development of an antisocial personality disorder. And I'm going to read you a quote from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It says, quote, antisocial personality disorder is a mental health condition in which a person has a long-term pattern of manipulating, exploiting, and violating the rights of others, end quote. And I bring this up because he fits the mold, but there's no evidence that I could find that Stephen Avery has ever been diagnosed with an antisocial personality disorder. Right. But he does sort of fit the mold. Following his release uh, from the animal cruelty conviction, Stephen and Lori welcomed another daughter. By early 1985, Lori was pregnant again, this time with twins. In January of 1985, Stephen was angry with his cousin, Sandra. Sandra, who was married to a Manitowoc County police officer, alleged that Stephen engaged in lewd conduct, including standing standing naked and masturbating in his yard as she drove by. Like, this is who we're dealing with. She has told a few people about the incident in local taverns, and this really pissed him off. On January 3rd, 1985, Stephen ran Sandra off the road and pointed a firearm at her. Stephen claimed the firearm was not loaded, but the news reports state the weapon was. So I don't know what the truth is. Sandra states that she was forced into Stephen's vehicle and believed that Stephen was planning to harm her. In some sources, it's alleged that he was going to sexually assault his cousin. In other sources, it's that he was going to just shoot her. In some sources, and according to Stephen Avery, this was not exactly what happened at all, and Sandra kind of made it up because she didn't like him. He did let her go, however, and when, and basically what she said is that she had her infant daughter in the car, and this is January in Wisconsin, and it was freezing, and so she made the case that, you know, you don't want anything to happen to the baby, Stephen. You've got to let me go, and so he let her go. And, of course, she filed charges. And for this crime, Stephen was charged with endangering the life of another person and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. And he's released on bail while awaiting those charges. So at this point, that is pending. That's a pretty serious crime. Yeah. I mean, this isn't small potatoes. On July 23rd, 1985, Steve and Lori welcomed their twin sons to the world. Just six days later, on July 29th, 1985, a woman jogging near Lake Michigan was savagely attacked, sexually assaulted, and left for dead. The woman, who was prominent in Manitowoc County, survived and was able to provide a description of her assailant. According to the now-famed documentary, Making a Murderer, the original description provided by the victim did not match Stephen Avery. However, a deputy who was friends with his cousin, the one that Steve ran off the road, felt as if the description sounded a lot like Stephen Avery, and so she suggested that it was Stephen Avery who probably committed this crime. The documentary explains that a composite sketch was developed of the assailant, and it is believed that the sketch artist was shown a photo of Stephen Avery prior to developing this sketch. I cannot prove one way or another. He, on the documentary and under his deposition, says he was not, and he went off what the the victim said. However, the, the original description, 
and this sketch are very, very different. Following the development of the sketch, the victim picked Stephen Avery out of a photo lineup. He was arrested the following day. When his twins were just days old, Stephen, who was 23 years old at the time, was charged with attempted murder and sexual assault. In August of 1985, the victim testified that her assailant held her at knife point and threatened to kill her when she fought against the sexual assault. The assailant punched her in the face and began choking her. During the struggle, the victim kicked her assailant in the groin, at which point he savagely beat her. In this preliminary hearing, the victim pointed to Stephen Avery and identified him as her attacker. Steve's defense team presented 16 alibi witnesses that included his father, a supermarket employee, his wife, and according to Stephen's father, Stephen was helping him pour concrete from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Following this, Stephen's wife testified that the couple took their children to Green Bay to the supermarket, which the employee confirmed and he had a receipt for. The state's attorney, Dennis Vogel, countered by questioning the reliability of the alibi witnesses and calling Stephen a habitual and dangerous offender. Like, it's kind of hard to get past all of those alibis, but when you've got a victim saying, no, right. that's the guy, like, who do you believe? You know, you want to believe that victim who went through that horrible crime. Right. The case went to trial in December of 1985, Several alibi witnesses testified for the defense. Additionally, the defense presented a time-stamped receipt from the supermarket backing up Lori's testimony that her and Stephen were together in Green Bay at the time of the attack and the rape. Despite this, the testimony of the victim in which she identified Stephen as her attacker was just too much for the jury to overcome. A state forensic examiner also testified that a hair found on one of Stephen's shirts was consistent with that of the victim. Stephen was found guilty of sexual assault and attempted murder and false imprisonment. He was sentenced to 32 years in prison. He was also sentenced to six years in prison for the charges that were already pending against him as a result of running his cousin off the road and holding her at gunpoint. So I think it's important that we realize that, you know, six years he was going to he was going to go to prison either way for the crime he committed in January where he ran his cousin off the road. That doesn't mean that it's OK what happened to him. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think it's important to know this was not, you know, somebody that only went to prison based off of this conviction, which if you don't know yet, you will soon learn was not accurate. Stephen Avery was sent to a Wisconsin prison to serve his sentence, still maintaining his innocence. His parents remained convinced of his innocence, stating that the officers just didn't like their son. What I can't get over in making a murderer is the poor, poor me stuff from him and his parents. Like, I'm sure his parents want to believe the, in the best in him. And obviously, with this, this rape conviction, they weren't wrong. But, like, it's just the poor, poor me stuff. I can't stand it. Yeah. Stephen appealed his conviction over and over, but all of his appeals were denied. During his time in prison, Lori divorced him. And Stephen did not take this well. He wrote her threatening letters in which he threatens to, quote, get her. End quote, and then, quote, kill her, 
and make her pay, end quote. He even tells his children, he sends them Easter cards, and he tells them in the cards that he hates their mother. Like, that is so inappropriate. Lori and Stephen's divorce was finalized in 1988, and Lori went on to marry Peter Dassey, the ex-husband of Stephen's sister, Barbara, and the father of her four boys. So, he married... She... Married. They were married to a brother and sister. They divorced. And so then she basically married her brother-in-law, her former sister-in-law's ex-husband. So now the nephews become cousins and cousins become uncle. Okay. I mean, basically, their cousins became their step-siblings. Right. Like, I told you, there's a lot of weird things. There must not be a lot of people up there in Wisconsin. I guess. In 1995... Avery's defense obtained an order to test DNA found under the victim's fingernails. The testing showed that there was a profile of an unknown person found under the victim's nails. The judge ruled, though, that since the DNA was not identified as anyone in particular, it was not enough to overturn Stephen Avery's conviction. That's bullshit. It didn't match the victim. It didn't match Stephen Avery. I'm assuming they probably tested the husband's DNA just to rule it out. Right. Like, how is that not enough to overturn the conviction? Eventually. I think what it's saying is that it's not pointing to anybody in particular, but nobody at all. Right. But it's still proof that it wasn't him. But you got to remember, this is early 2000s. This is still baby phases of DNA sequencing and stuff like that. That's what I, you know. I guess, but I don't know. Eventually, the Wisconsin Innocence Project agreed to take Stephen Avery's case. By 2002, there had been a significant advancements in forensic science, including hairs found on um, the victim that could now be tested for DNA. In April of 2002, the attorneys obtained a court order to test these 13 hairs found on the victim. Of the 13 hairs, only one was viable for testing. One hair. The hair was matched to a convicted felon currently in prison for a violent sexual assault, and his name was Gregory Allen. On September 11, 2003, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department and Wisconsin Innocence Project requested the charges against Stephen Avery be dismissed. The request was granted, and the media documented the reunion between Stephen Avery and his family. This was a highly publicized exoneration, and it was covered extensively by the media. And in all of these, you know, he talks about being in prison for 18 years for a crime he didn't commit. Anytime you spend time in prison for a crime you didn't commit, that's wrong and that's horrible. But he was going to go for six years anyway. So let's let's be real about this. He didn't serve 18 years for a crime he didn't commit. He served 12, 12 technically. But if he had just gone for the other thing, what, he maybe would have served two. Right. Three. So, I mean, he still had a significant amount of time that he served for a crime he didn't commit. But let's not pretend like this was just Joe Blow innocent off the street. Right. So let's talk about Gregory Allen for a minute. Gregory Allen was a habitual offender that Manitowoc County authorities had been well aware of back in 1985. Allen had a history of sexually deviant behavior. In fact, police had actually had Allen on surveillance in the days leading up to this attack in 1985. 
At the time of the attack, they were not watching him, however. Inside the case file from 1985 for which Stephen Avery was convicted was documentation of a similar attack committed on the exact same beach by Gregory Allen in 1983. Gregory Allen's name was never presented to the defense as an alternative suspect in this case, something the Avery family felt showed bias by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. So... And I guess there was kind of a little bit of a bias at that time. You well, know? there certainly was because obviously somebody knew he was an alternative suspect because when they open up the case files in 2003, there's all this shit in there about Gregory Allen, right. who now DNA proves was the man who raped this woman. Right. So they at least had an inkling it may not be Stephen Avery, but it seems like they got tunnel vision and that was just how it was going to be. So not only did they know that there was a possibility of another suspect, but they didn't even share this information that was in the case file with the defense. So that's a Brady violation. I don't know. This was shady. What's exactly a Brady violation? It's when the state has evidence that they don't present to the defense. Gotcha. And it's just, it's a little messed up like i definitely think they got tunnel vision they decided stephen avery was guilty and they ignored all evidence that pointed elsewhere another report regarding gregory allen was dated in october of 1985 and it alleged lewd and lascivious conduct there were three other reports of indecent exposure against gregory allen these reports were all noted to be in possession by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. Additionally, in 1995, a deputy from Brown County Sheriff's Department contacted the jail in Manitowoc County to inform them that a suspect they had in custody had confessed to an attack in Manitowoc County for which another man was imprisoned for. So 10 years after this crime, Manitowoc County Jail gets a call and they say, we have a guy in our custody for a rape, and he's saying he raped somebody in Manitowoc County in 1985, and there's somebody else in prison for it. The jailer receiving this call suggested that the deputy speak with the detective, and he transferred the call. But no report was ever made on this call, nor were there any follow-up to the determine the validity of this claim. So that's a little shady, too. That's a... It's a little shitty. Yeah. Like that's not a little shady. That's just straight shit. Pretty much. Like you had like and nobody even bothered. You know, that's the piss poor thing about this. Not only was Gregory Allen's name all over documents, you know, on for the prosecution that the prosecution had, but then you get a phone call ten years later that's saying, Hey, you guys might want to check it check up on this, you know, because right. you know, it's not like there was enough people that already said that you know, that, oh, hey, he wasn't there. He was in Green Bay, Wisconsin doing the grocery thing with the wife and the kids and being the, fa the father and the family man. Yeah. An article from 2016 in The Reporter suggests that Gregory Allen is suspected of an attack in 1993 in which a woman was attacked with a knife and raped. In 1996, Gregory Allen entered a woman's home. As her child lay in the next room, he threatened to kill her if she screamed. He savagely raped her. And for this crime, Gregory Allen was convicted and sentenced to 60 years in prison. 
That was the year after the judge denied the DNA as enough to overturn Stephen Avery's conviction. So his DNA probably wasn't in the system yet, but it would have been the following year had they overturned that conviction. Right. So although Gregory Allen is suspected of that 1993 rape and several other attacks in the Green Bay area, he has never been charged with any of them except for the one in 1996. Gregory Allen remains incarcerated according to the sex offender registration. However, it should be noted that he was charged in 2007 and convicted of criminal sexual conduct in Minnesota. It's unclear when this crime for which he was charged uh, occurred, though, because it doesn't, from what I can tell, he never was out of Wisconsin prison. Right. So I don't know if this was something that he was charged with, like, after the fact, um, but he was. Allen is known to be a heavy drug user with a penchant for violence against women. And as it would turn out, the man confessed to a Manitowoc County assault in 1995 was indeed Gregory Allen. But his statements were largely ignored by authorities. Allen remains incarcerated as of May of 2023. So in 1995, had they listened, this woman may not have been attacked in 96. Right. So following Stephen Avery's exoneration, the Wisconsin Department of Justice was tasked with investigating the way Manitowoc County authorities handled the 1985 investigation. A report from the Attorney General determined that there were no ethical or criminal acts committed by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. Maybe not criminal, but I think there were ethical issues for sure. The report pointed to the fact that the victim identified Stephen Avery as her attacker, determining that this gave the investigators and the district attorney reasonable evidence to continue with the prosecution of Stephen Avery. I get that. I do. But... If there's any truth to the fact that the sketch artist was shown Stephen Avery's picture before developing the sketch, that would be a big problem for me. You know, that to me is misconduct. And then they didn't share the evidence of this other suspect. For his wrongful conviction, the state of Wisconsin was required to pay Stephen Avery $450,000. After the attorney general's report was released, Stephen Avery hired a civil attorney to pursue damages from the Manitowoc County, um, the sheriff that was in place in 1985 and the prosecutor who convicted him. Stevens' team was asking for $36 million. Similar cases averaged approximately $500,000 per year for a wrongful conviction. Given this, Stephen Avery likely stood to receive between six and $8 million. So what do you think about that? Do you think people that are wrongly convicted should get like huge sums of money like that? Yes. I mean, I because do, I do to an extent if if there was misconduct involved, if it was reasonable for everybody to reach the conclusion they did and the jury just got it wrong, then I don't know that they're No, I think because it's this prison's a totally different beast, you know? Mm-hmm. And you spent 18 years in there? I'm if, sorry. Now, I don't think it should be 500000 like per year. Like maybe double what, maybe double gross income for a year? Yeah. Per year. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I think if there was misconduct, like I definitely think there were things in this case that were misconduct. 
I definitely think Stephen Avery was entitled to something. Like, I definitely do. There were things that the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department did not do right in this investigation, for sure. But I think if the investigation was by the book and a jury had reasonable evidence to convict, I don't think that you're entitled to damages if everybody did everything in good faith the way they were supposed to. That was not the case in this situation, though. Right. I don't know. There was some shady shit in this situation. Right. Supporters of Avery, as well as several media outlets, reported that Avery spent 18 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. However, like I said earlier, the reality of the situation is that six of those 18 years were for running his cousin off the road and holding her at gunpoint while her infant baby was in the car. Despite that fact, 12 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit was definitely 12 years too many. Depositions for the civil case began in early October 2005. On November 3, 2005, authorities from nearby Calumet County, Wisconsin, came to the Avery Salvage Yard to question Stephen and others who lived in this 40-acre property. According to the secretary at Auto Trader Magazine, Teresa had made three stops that day, including one at the Avery Salvage Yard. Her phone records show that she was near the Avery property between 2.30 p.m. and 3 p.m. The other two stops were done prior to this final stop. When the caller requested photos be taken of a van that was going to be listed, the caller asked for, quote, the same girl as last time, end quote which was Teresa Halbach. Teresa had been out to the Avery property approximately six times in the past six months. That's not that unusual because it is a salvage yard. So I'm sure he's constantly listing cars on Auto Trader. So, I mean, that to me is not suspicious. The caller gave the name of Barb Janda during the phone call, which was Stephen's sister. Although it is believed that it was Stephen who made the call because the call was not from a woman. On October 31st, 2005, phone records proved that Stephen Avery called Teresa Halbach using the star 67 feature to block his number at 2.24 p.m. and 2.35 p.m. Bobby Dassey, one of Stephen's nephews who lived on the property, testified that he saw Teresa Halbach pull up, take pictures of the van, and then walk towards Stephen's trailer between 2.30 p.m. and 3 p.m. Possibly contradicting this testimony, though, is a bus driver who dropped Brendan Dassey off from school that day between 3.30 and 3.45 p.m., and she said that she saw Teresa taking photographs of the van at that time. She wasn't taking pictures for over an hour of a van for Auto Trader. I mean, it's a click, click, get your money kind of thing, you know? So the timeline is not real concrete here, but we know that... Her phone records show she arrived approximately to between 2.30 and 3 o'clock, and then he was calling her right before that. No time after this do any other witnesses claim to have seen Teresa Hallbach. So as far as everyone who knows her is concerned, this was the last time she was seen alive. As soon as the media realizes that police are at the residence of Stephen Avery as part of the investigation into this missing woman, they flock to the area. Now, you got to remember, this is only two years after his 
wrongful conviction was overturned. And this was like huge media coverage of that. On November 3rd, Stephen is interviewed and immediately suggests that if police happen to find anything on his property, they must have planted it. I'm sorry, but I think that's weird. I don't know, like, I don't know what it's like to be wrongfully convicted of a crime. But why would you immediately jump to, well, if they do find something, it's because they planted it. Why wouldn't you say, you know, they're welcome to search my property. They won't find anything because I'm not involved in this. Like a thousand percent weird. Right? Like, I understand that he was probably paranoid, but... Why would you even let them search your property if you were that paranoid? Right. He does allow them to search it. And as already suggested, he is already telling people that he's being framed despite he's not even been announced as like a suspect. They're just looking for traces of Teresa and trying to find out what happened to her. They haven't even like named him as a suspect yet. Friends and family of Teresa Halbach come together and they form this large search party. They are searching the areas around Stephen Avery's home and the Avery lot for any signs of Teresa. Since this is her last known location, you know, they really want to see if they can find her 1999 Toyota RAV4. It's a bluish green color and they have that's missing as well. Police were told that phone calls to Teresa were going to voicemail, but that her voicemail box was full. Her brother admitted, though, that he had guessed his sister's password and had listened to some of the messages, but he said, I didn't delete anything. But despite this, the mailbox was noted to no longer be completely full. So clearly somebody had gotten into her voicemails and deleted something. Right. I mean, that's obvious. The search party included her parents, her siblings, her cousins, and her former boyfriend. The former boyfriend, a man named Ryan, is actually leading the search party in a sense. Teresa lived with a man named Scott, who was just a roommate. Many have questioned why he didn't notice that she was missing between Monday evening and Thursday when her family officially reported her as a missing person. So I find that a little weird, too. Like, if your roommate doesn't come home for three days, you wouldn't find that suspicious? She's also a grown-ass adult. Well, this is true. Like, I mean, yeah, it'd be a little weird, but she's also a grown adult. Like, well, I'm and not... I don't know what her pattern was. You know, maybe right. she stayed with family sometimes. She was very close to her family. Right. So, anyway, there's definitely that question as to, like, why he didn't notice anything. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of speculation. There's not. That's not evidence. Pamela Sturm and her daughter Nicole joined the search party, and I think they were like a distant cousin or something of Teresa, on Saturday, November the 5th. They began searching the Avery property, which was full of old salvage vehicles, for signs of Teresa Hallbach's vehicle. Within 45 minutes, they found the Toyota RAV4 near the back of the Avery property, covered in boards and twigs. At this point in the investigation, it's announced that the Calumet County Sheriff's Office will take the lead in this investigation as the Manitowoc County has a clear conflict of interest in regard to the civil suit pending against them. So now they they are naming Stephen Avery as a suspect. So the Manitowoc County is um, Sheriff's Office is supposed to completely back off, right? Yep. 
Despite this announcement, there is evidence that the Manitowoc County Police remained involved in this investigation. The officer who arrested Stephen Avery in 1985 was now the sheriff in 2005. As is common in small communities, many of the same officers working for the department, including the officer who originally took the call in 1995 about the man confessing to the attack Stephen Avery was in jail for, and the off- this officer, along with his supervisor, who had been the one to transport the evidence that freed Stephen Avery in 2002, were both linked to the discovery of key pieces of evidence in this murder investigation. So Manitowoc County messes up big time by not really backing out of this investigation, yeah. even and when they announced that they were. I, I have so many issues. Like, there's so many issues with this, you know. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I get it. It's small town. Maybe they were just trying to help but still no right if somebody finds shit you get the fuck out like especially when you tell them nope Kalmuk county county is going to be taking the lead on this one right so inside Teresa's rav4 police found several blood stains near the ignition and the driver's side of the vehicle there were six blood stains in all the dna analysis concluded these stains belonged to Stephen avery Another stain, which appeared to have been made by bloody hair, was found in the back of the RAV4 and was determined through DNA analysis to belong to Teresa Halbach. After the RAV4 was found and blood evidence was collected, Stephen Avery screamed louder to the media that he was being framed by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department as retribution for filing his $36 million lawsuit. I mean, it's DNA. Yeah. But as we know, this gets much more dramatic. Police searched Avery's property, which included a burn pit. According to his neighbors and family, Avery had a large bonfire on Halloween night. Different witnesses have varied in their description of the fire. Some said it was a huge fire. Some said it was just a little fire. But that's really besides the point because analysis of the burn pit found steel cables and vehicle parts which arson experts state were likely used as an accelerant i didn't know you could use that kind of stuff as accelerant uh some parts yeah the pieces of steel were intertwined with not one or two but hundreds of human bone fragments and teeth These bone fragments and teeth were positively identified through DNA analysis and dental records as belonging to Teresa Halbach. Some of these bones showed patterns consistent with gunshot trauma. Police did not release this fact to the media at first. So he's still saying they're framing him, but like hundreds of pieces of bones? I I don't know. Like... To a certain point, I could be like, okay, yeah, small town cops framing because they don't want to pay out that lawsuit. But now you have bones on your property. Right. Like, everything else has been kind of super stanchion. Like, not, well, I mean, it's DNA evidence, but eh, okay, I can kind of see where it's like, oh, they smudged some blood or, you know. Right. They found her bones. Right. In your burn pit. At this point, it's a moot point. Well, and they found more than just her bones. They found the rivets 
from Teresa's Daisy Fuentes jeans that she was wearing on October 31st, the rivets from her jeans in that burn pit. So if somebody planted those bones, which is what Stephen Avery alleges, they picked up the rivets from her jeans? They had to have burned her. Like they, What he's saying is they had to have burned her. Like the cops have had to have burned her. Like and got the bone fragments and sprinkled them into the burn pit, right. along along with her PDA cell phone and the stuff from her purse. Right, all of her belongings and shit were found in this burn pit. This evidence left very little doubt of where Teresa's body had been burned. However, some other bones were found in other areas on the Avery property and a nearby quarry, which was owned by Manitowoc County. So the Avery's defense, people that are on his side and his lawyers and stuff, they say, like, obviously there were other spots where there were bones found. And I guess they even found some, like, in one of his siblings' burn pits. And then they found them in this quarry, which was owned by the county. So they're saying, oh, that's proof. And these were, like, her pelvic bones that they found in the quarry. Or you cut her up and burned her in other, like, separate places. Or, I mean, my thought was an animal took off with the bones. That's also true. But it's kind of weird that they'd end up in burn pits. One of them was in a burn pit. Maybe he just put some of them in there. I don't know. But the pelvic bones found in the quarry, to me, that was probably animals, I would think. Either that or they weren't burning fast enough, so he disposed of them nearby his home. I could see that as well. Inside the burn pit, like I said, they're also finding all of her belongings and like rivets from jeans. So the idea that somebody planted those, I just don't, I just can't buy it into that. Sorry, but I can't. On November 8th, 2005, two Manitowoc County police officers who were not supposed to be involved found the key to Teresa's RAV4 inside Stephen Avery's bedroom. In the first season of Making a Murderer, the defense team suggests that the key was not found until the seventh or eighth search of the trailer. However, that's not exactly true. That's very misleading. Records show that this was only the second or third true search of the trailer. Other trips into the property were focused for specific items, such as the shotgun that was found in the trailer. Um, they weren't full-fledged searches. So, yes, they made entry seven or eight times, but it was like you have a warrant to make entry and obtain a shotgun. So they went in and they got the shot. They didn't search the whole place yeah, every single time. And that's something I like about your story better than the actual making a murder story. They don't tell you that. They're like, no. oh, no, they were they searched it seven or eight times. No, guys, they were in the home seven or eight times. But of that, only two or three were actually like full-fledged searches. Right. Granted. It's another Manitowoc County. Who shouldn't have been involved. Who shouldn't have been involved. Period. Like, and I'm sorry to say this, like, if they're lucky they got a conviction, I think, because, the, uh, like, there's so many things that could have been like, well, no. Like, there weren't. Oh, any, yeah. There was definitely I things want, messed I, up. I want this evidence thrown out. I want this evidence thrown out because they weren't supposed to be there. I don't know if, like, they're not supposed to be touching that there were definitely things that were mishandled in this case without a doubt um but it's important to note too that they did find the firearm that steven was in possession of which was illegal because even though his conviction for the rape and attempted murder was overturned he was still a convicted felon 
Um, he, he committed a felony when he ran his cousin off the road, and I believe he committed a felony with the robberies, too. I don't know if the animal cruelty was a felon or not, but he was not even supposed to have a weapon. So on the key that they find, please find DNA evidence belonging to Stephen Avery, but none from Teresa Hallbach. And so this becomes a big issue, too, because... The DNA source was what's called touch DNA. So not from blood. It was from skin cells, sweat, that kind of thing. But the defense points out why wouldn't her DNA be on it if it's her key that she's had. You know what I mean? Like you would have had to wipe that. They suggest that the police had to have wiped it off and then put Stephen's DNA on it. Otherwise, they should have found Teresa's too. Not uh, entirely. I mean, you're talking about, like, and that's something I think when people talk about, like, DNA evidence, they're like, oh, it's so, you know, oh, we can do so much with it. You can, yes, but it's also very fragile. Right. Like, the blood smears and stuff like that, yeah, it's good because there's millions of cells inside of those, the blood, you know, you're talking about how many times you actually touch the key to your car. You I mean, know? I don't have automatic start, so I touch mine a lot. You know? But it, then it goes into a purse or a pocket or something. Right. And, and it, it degrades. degrades. That and makes I'm, sense. You know? And we're not talking about, like, it takes years for this DNA to, to, to you know. We, hell, we've talked about in other stories how they probably had DNA evidence to, you know, get people off or something like that. But it's degraded. Right. You know? And you're talking about perfectly preserved samples. This is a key that was just tossed around touched around and guess what he was the last person granted it's kind of weird now that i'm saying it you know that his dna lasted right but it went from him touching it to where they found it right nothing else you know it didn't go into a purse it didn't go into a pocket to get rubbed off or anything like that it so let's talk about where they did find it they found it next to a bookshelf in his bedroom sort of underneath a pair of slippers what was weird about this was that they had searched this area at least one other time and they didn't find it. They had searched the bookshelf one other time and didn't find it. But what the Manitowoc County officer that found it says is that when he went in that day, he shook it, the bookcase really hard and the key fell out from between like the back panel of the bookcase and like the side of the bookcase. So it kind of fell out. But then it's like, but it fell out under a pair of slippers. That's kind of weird, too. So they do make a big deal about this in the documentary because it seems a little odd. Which I can, like, I attest, like I'll, I'll give them that. It's very odd. It's not a strong piece of evidence, no. in my opinion. Whether no. or not it's her key and it's in his house or not, it's not the strongest piece of evidence right. in, this, in this case. On November 15th, 2005, after receiving the results of forensic testing, Stephen Avery was arrested by the Calumet County Sheriff's Office and charged with the murder of Teresa Hallbach. His charges included first-degree homicide, mutilation of a corpse, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Avery tells the media that Manitowoc County has framed him by planting all the evidence. He suggests that they planted the blood in Teresa's car and the bones on his property. Which again, so if you're going to believe this, you have to believe that they either killed her themselves, the police, or they found her and knew exactly where her bones were and that they were hers and planted them 
all of that on Stephen's property without him knowing. Right. It just doesn't make sense. Well, you did say it was 40 acres. That's a lot of property to get there. Yeah, but it, the, the bones were found no. 20 feet from his house. I know. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit right. It gets so much weirder. Like, for people that haven't heard the story, it gets so much weirder. It does. At first, his fiance Jody sticks by him, but she quickly ends their relationship while he's in jail. Jody is shown in the first season of Making a Murderer and appears to fully support Stephen. She even says that she talked to Stephen on Halloween night and claimed that he didn't seem stressed or busy or anything that would lead her to suspect that he was part of this murder. During the time when Teresa was killed, Jody was in jail on alcohol-related charges. I think it was like a DUI. She further gets in trouble for continued alcohol use and in violating a no-contact order put in place by her probation officer to keep her away from Stephen Avery. So my guess is, as is the case a lot of times with probation parole, they don't want you with the same crowd that you got in trouble with. And so, you know, sometimes they will say, like, you're not supposed to be around this person or that person. And they gave her a no-contact order with Stephen Avery, who is in jail now, awaiting trial for Teresa's murder. And she disobeyed that order, and she was arrested several times. And so, finally, she ends their relationship. And in the documentary, it's portrayed that she basically got tired of Manitowoc County harassing her and arresting her for supporting Stephen. But Jody tells a very, very different story. In an exclusive interview several years later, Jody says that Stephen was very abusive to her, that he often beat her, threatened her, and was very controlling of her. He told her that she better make him look good in this documentary or he would kill her. He allegedly threatened to kill her, her child, and her family on numerous occasions. Legal records confirm a history of domestic violence that Stephen perpetrated against Jody. She stated that she left once she felt confident that Stephen was not going to be able to get out of jail and harm her. She calls him a monster and says that she truly believes Stephen Avery did kill Teresa Halbach. Very different from what's portrayed in that documentary. Yeah. In January of 2006, Stephen Avery's niece tells police that her uncle has sexually abused her and her cousin, Brendan Dassey. So in Making a Murderer, they make it sound like they kept going after Jody, and when Jody wouldn't talk with them, they just decided to go after Brendan. That's not exactly how that happened. Although he was never charged, his niece, who was just 15 years old at the time, states that her uncle Stephen Avery groomed her after he was released from prison in 2003. She also states that her cousin Brendan had been feeling down lately, crying and losing a lot of weight. She says that she asked Brendan what was wrong, at which time she claims Brendan confessed to seeing Teresa Halbach at their uncle's house on October 31st. She further claims that Brendan told her about seeing body parts in the bonfire on October 31st, 2005. So it wasn't just they needed more evidence, so they went after Brendan Dassey, who we're going to talk about. But there was a reason they interviewed Brendan the way they did. And while it has nothing to do with Teresa Hallbach's murder, you have Stephen Avery, who was molesting his 15-year-old niece and 16-year-old nephew. Like, this is who we're dealing with. So at this point, Stephen Avery 
he needs a good defense attorney, right? Well, he finds two of the best defense attorneys in Wisconsin, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting. But he needs money to be able to hire them. And so he settles his civil suit in February of 2006 for $400,000. Now, remember, even though he was suing for $36 million, he was likely going to get six to $8 million. He settles that for 400000 This was a mere fraction of what he had anticipated, but it was enough to hire his defense team. And so, again, in the documentary, they say, you know, how convenient that they got to settle this out by filing murder charges against him and he has to get someone to defend him. So they make it sound like this was kind of pre-planned by Manitowoc County. Um, so let's talk about Brennan Dassey a little bit. Brendan Ray Dassey was born October 19, 1989, to Barbara Avery Taddock and Peter Dassey. His father would later marry Stephen Avery's ex-wife. His mother is Stephen Avery's sister. He has four brothers, including one half-brother. He lived with his mother next door to Stephen Avery in 2005. At the time of the murder, Brendan was a 16-year-old sophomore at Mishicot High School. He was enrolled in mostly specially educated special education classes and had a borderline low IQ estimated to be between 69 and 81. He was a shy kid who was known to be of not of great intelligence. You know, this was just not, he was a compromised kid basically is what I'm trying to say. On March 1st, 2006, Brennan Dassey is taken out of class and interrogated by investigators on about this murder case after his cousin says, you know, Brendan told me he saw Teresa's body parts in the fire. According to police, Barbara, his mother, knew that they were talking to Brendan. However, Brendan's defense and his mother state that she was not even aware that he was being questioned. So that's the first thing that goes wrong in this case. I don't know if, if she was aware they should have had her sign something. But I don't know if she was aware or not. Brendan was questioned for four hours without a parent or an attorney. And at first, his statement remained the same as he had originally given back in October. He said that he had been at Stephen's house that night for a bonfire, but he didn't hear or see anything else. During this interrogation, police continually insinuate that Brendan is lying. And they ask him repeatedly to tell him what they saw. They're like, oh, come on, you got to tell us the truth. We can't help you if you don't tell us the truth. They presented him with the statement from his cousin, which led to this interrogation to begin with. He continued to deny the allegations, but authorities are very suggestive that if he tells them what they want to hear, they will show him some leniency. They start to ask him what he saw, and he describes a horrific scene. However... When you watch the the video of this interrogation, he seems to be guessing at what the answers are that the police are looking for. It, it doesn't sound like he's telling a story. It sounds like he's trying to guess. They ask him repeatedly what happened to Teresa's head, holding back the knowledge that she had been shot. Brendan says that she was stabbed in the head, that they cut her hair, that she was punched, and so on and so forth. Like, he gives a hundred answers, none of which are, we shot her in the head. This interrogation was so shitty. Oh, watching. yeah. It was disturbing. Like, the cops, like the detectives that were interrogating, were so forceful. Mm-hmm. 
and so just like, come on now, don't do that. Don't right. say that. Like, you're leading this kid in exactly where you want him to go. And then when you lead him to that point, he says she was stabbed. Right. Are you fucking kidding me? And then he says, oh, we cut her hair. Well, what else did you do? Well, we punched her. Well, what else did you do? And he's just offering guesses. Okay. And finally, the officer is like, I'm just going to come out and say it. Who shot her in the head? So now right. they just let go of that one piece of information they held back, which would have added validity to any confession right. he gave. And the fact that there was no lawyer, no parent for an underage kid for four hours. I don't give a fuck what they said. His Like, I believe the mom. I believe that the mom, like, there was, she had no clue what the hell was going on. Right. So finally, Brendan makes a videotape statement in which he says he got off the bus on October 31st, 2005. He went to get the mail and found a letter for his uncle Stephen. He said he approached Stephen's trailer and he could hear loud screams. Stephen answered the door, covered in sweat, and invited Brendan in. Brendan said he found Teresa Hallbach shackled and restrained on Stephen's bed. He claimed that she was completely nude. And at Stephen's encouragement, Brendan said that he raped Teresa Hallbach as she begged for help. So he goes into detail to say that, like, she said, oh, you can stop this. You can stop this. And so the police say, like, giving that much detail proves that his confession was correct. Brendan went on to say that Stephen gave him a knife and told him to slit Teresa's throat. He said he did so and that Stephen also stabbed the young woman. Brendan's confession then says they took Teresa to the garage where Stephen Avery shot her in the head. Brendan says that they later burned her remains in the fire pit behind Stephen's garage. He described the event in great detail, including when he noticed Teresa's stomach stop moving after she was stabbed. And with this confession, Brendan Dassey was arrested and charged with first degree murder, false imprisonment and sexual assault. These charges were also added to Stephen Avery's current charges. So, like Chris said, watching this interrogation is disturbing because it was definitely a leading, and I, I think it was a coerced confession, I'll be honest. Oh, it's 100% coerced. I'm not saying he did or didn't do it, but the confession was very coerced, and he did not have the details till they provided him with some of them. So, did they ever say that her throat was slashed? No. Like, so there's no evidence that her throat was slashed. In fact, the lack of blood found inside the trailer leads serious doubt that her throat was ever slashed. Right. I'm not saying it wasn't, but they didn't find blood in the trailer. Right. And if they had stabbed her over and over, you would have found blood. You would think, You'd think. on his mattress and in, in his, in his home, on his clothes, anywhere. Right. Um, so immediately after giving his statement, Brendan tells his mom that he made the whole thing up. And like, what's really sad is while he's doing this, Brendan asks him, he's like, you know, how long is this going to take? Like, do you think I'm going to make sixth hour? Because I have a, a paper due sixth hour or a project or something like he had no idea that like him providing this information, he was going to be arrested. Clearly, he thought he was going back to class. So this is not a bright kid, you know. 
And so he immediately basically says, I made the whole thing up. I was guessing that's what I do on my homework. I just wanted to tell them what they wanted to hear so I could go back to class. He wasn't smart enough to realize he was implicating himself in this crime, like serious and, felony. And during, like, like we've said this a thousand times already, during the interrogation, it sounded like he was guessing. Oh, yeah, it did. It we really s- did. We stabbed her. We stabbed her. We like, cut her hair. Yeah, like it we was always her? that. It was always that infliction of a child. You, you, we all know what a child sounds like when they're trying to guess an answer. Right. Rainbows, sunshine, Daisy. Right. Like no, it's not any of that, Brendan. It's if, who shot her? Who shot her? Right. Like fucking fuck. Yeah, it was disturbing. His mother, which is Stephen's sister, urges him to recant and tell the truth. Brendan does recant, but the damage was already done. Police learn that, well, okay, so part of Brendan's confession, he says that Stephen took the battery out of Teresa's car. And so with this information, they now swab the hood latch of the RAV4. And guess what they find? Stephen Avery's touch DNA, most likely from his perspiration. So they find sweat DNA on the hood latch, which they would not have swabbed except for Brendan's confession where he says Stephen took the battery out of the car. So what do you think of that? Like, you plant blood. Can you plant sweat? I'm sure you can, but I'm sure it's not nearly as good. I don't know, like, the, the whole point, like, whatever. I'm over the whole planting of evidence in this case. Over the next several months, Stephen Avery's parents and family mostly turn on Brendan. They seem angry about his confession. His mother, Barbara, says in the documentary that her parents didn't come to see him or really ask about it. It seems like they're just mad. You know, there's definitely, like, this you-turned-your-back-on-family kind of attitude. Stephen also seems to care less about who is going to defend Brendan when his sister asks for help. She calls him and she's like, you know, can you help with money for an attorney? You've got two really good attorneys. Brendan has a public defender. And he's like, basically tells her it's not his problem. Barbara turns angry against Stephen and and indicates several times that she believes Stephen is guilty. However, she changes her demeanor several times throughout making a murderer. You know, sometimes she thinks he's guilty and then she thinks he's innocent and then he's guilty, then he's innocent. And it just it's she just can't seem to make up her mind. But it's obviously not out of the scope of possibilities in her head at some point that Stephen Avery committed this crime. In May of 2006, Brennan's attorney tries to convince him to take a plea deal and testify against his uncle. Brendan considers this as his attorneys say that he would have a good chance of getting out of prison while he's still young enough to have a family. But his mom, Barbara, tells him absolutely not. However, and she urges him to continue to deny being involved in the crime. Now, here's the thing. I understand being like, if you didn't do this, don't admit to doing this. I get that completely. But I think this is where the maybe lack of education comes in just a little bit because he was making a somewhat educated decision. Even if he was innocent, he was listening to his attorney, but his mom is basically telling him, don't listen to your attorney. You didn't do this. You're not going to plead guilty. 
even though his attorney's telling him you're going to get life in prison. Right. You know, I whether he was involved or not. I don't know. Like, pretend it's one of our kids and they're coerced into a false confession, even though there's some evidence that's yielded from this confession. So false confession or not, there's probably some there's something somewhere. Right. Let's put it that way, because they get new evidence from the confession and not just the confession. If their attorney is telling them that it's in their best interest to plead guilty and they could get out in 10, 15, 20 years as opposed to spending life in prison, would you tell them not to take a deal? I don't know. I don't know. I would be... I Part of me would be like, just take the deal and then we'll do appeals. A lot of times if you take a deal, though, sometimes you waive your right to an appeal. Ugh. God, that's a hard... That's a hard, hard pill to swallow and so there's some people that believe that she was trying to convince brendan not to take the deal simply to save her brother but i don't think that's the truth i just don't think she was making intelligent decisions you know right and then brendan's attorney his own attorney hires an investigator who interrogates brendan and gets him to give yet another confession and statement that includes drawings Later, this investigator admitted that he was seeking evidence against Stephen Avery, and therefore he was not truly working for Brendan. So Brendan is betrayed by everyone he trusts. Right. His own family, the police, and his own attorney. Like, his own attorney does him real dirty. Just a little bit. Stephen Avery went to trial first in February of 2007. The charges of sexual assault and false imprisonment were imprisonment were dropped because at this point brennan dassey has given so many different conflicting statements as a witness and he was not going to testify against his uncle and his stories were considered too unreliable well hell that kind of helps you make your decision if he if brennan dacey was or if brennan was guilty or not right like hell if he can't get his story straight twice So Stephen went to trial on primarily circumstantial evidence. The evidence against Stephen was presented in devastating detail. Employees from Auto Trader testified that Teresa was bothered by Stephen Avery, that he had answered the door in early October wearing nothing but a towel, and she was really creeped out by it. Phone records show that he called to make the appointment that day on October 31st using a false name. His phone records also showed that he had called her twice that day using star 67 shortly before phone records proved she was on his property. Evidence is presented that Stephen Avery purchased restraints, including leg irons and handcuffs shortly before Teresa Hallbach's murder. These restraints were found inside his trailer. Avery admitted that they were his and he told police, quote, I bought them. I wanted to try something out with Jody. End quote. I'm not going to kink shame at all. Maybe that's the truth, but oddly enough, the restraints were consistent with Brendan's confession, although the confession was not used at Stephen Avery's trial. But here's the thing, though. How did Brendan know she was tied to the bed? Or was this another thing that police fed him? Right. We don't know that. Right. We don't know. 
The key found in Avery's bedroom had touched DNA consistent with perspiration that was a full profile match to Stephen Avery. The defense countered this evidence suggesting that the key was planted. The two detectives who found the key were Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, who should not have been actively involved in the investigation at this point. They also questioned how Stephen's DNA could be present, but not the owner of the key, Teresa Halbach. The defense argued that this was consistent with police cleaning the key and then planting the DNA. Additionally, the defense emphasized that the key was not found on several searches. According to the officers, the key was lodged between the frame and backboard of the bookshelf. Only when the Manitowoc County officer shook the bookshelf did the key fall out. In prior interviews, Stephen's sister Barbara had said that Brendan came home with stained pants from cleaning Stephen's garage with bleach. This statement was supported by the confession given by Brendan. In his confession, Brendan said that Stephen shot her in the garage. A spent bullet was found inside the garage with Teresa's DNA on it. However, no blood was found in the garage or the trailer belonging to Teresa. If Stephen and Brendan had stabbed her and slit her throat, surely there would have been more blood in that trailer, right? And so that's what kind of leads me to think that that part of Brendan's confession was false. Stephen Avery's niece testified for the prosecution. So this is the niece that came forward and said that Brendan had told her about seeing Teresa and the body parts and the fire and all of that. But when she goes on the stand, she recants this former statement and basically says that she made that whole thing up. Now, look at the way this Avery family treated Brendan when he gave this confession, whether it's true or not. They basically turned his back, turned their backs on him. So do I think it's possible that they, this niece felt pressure from her family to recant that statement? I do. I 100% do. Like, they treated Brendan such a shitty after he's, like, a confession that was fabricated at best. Right. You know? So, she claims that she made this whole thing up, but a phone call in prison between Stephen and a family member suggests that he did, in fact, abuse his niece. He makes a comment, something along the lines of, well, I didn't think, and I'm not going to say her name, but he says her name and he says, I, cause she, she told me she wasn't going to say nothing about that. So he pretty much admits that he was sexually abusing his 15 year old niece. According to the search warrants, police found a plethora of pornographic material in Stephen Avery's home. Okay. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I know they always bring that up in sexually motivated homicides, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. They do it because it because it proves deviance, or supposedly. Stephen also had a history of animal abuse and fires. In fact, the animal animal abuse case involved soaking a cat in gasoline and burning it alive, which is interesting, considered Teresa was burned. While he was serving his sentence for rape, in which he was eventually exonerated for, Stephen drew sketches of torture chambers and told other inmates that he wanted to rape and torture women when he was released from prison. He had a history of domestic battery and sexually deviant behavior, including allegations of molesting his minor niece and nephew. The forensic evidence included the hundreds of bone fractions, 
that were charred and found in Stephen Avery's burn pit. These were intertwined with steel belts and items from multiple automobiles, which arson's experts said were used as an accelerant. And so they also like bring up this claim, you know, that these bones were planted. And the prosecution counters that with they were literally intertwined with things from his property, like these these automobile parts and stuff from the salvage yard. So would the police be able to seriously plant bones intertwined with that? It didn't make sense. A forensic anthropologist suggested the evidence showed the victim was shot. The spent bullet from the Avery's garage was a match to the firearm that Stephen illegally had possession of and had Teresa's DNA on it. So not only because they also say that police planted this bullet with her blood on it. But the bullet matches his gun. I mean, this is a lot of evidence against him. It's a lot of evidence that the cops would have to get perfectly right if they're trying to plant it, you know? Right. The defense team staunchly defended their client against the DNA evidence on the bullet. First, they discussed that the bullet was not found until almost six months after the crime occurred and only after Brennan's false confession. However, shell casings were found in November of 2005 that matched the gun as well in the garage. They further attacked the evidence because during the testing process, the lab technician commingled her own DNA with the control in the study. What this tells you, though, is that the, it doesn't disqualify that this DNA is Teresa's. Nobody's arguing that. It is Teresa's DNA, but basically what they're saying is that the testing process was sloppy, so can you really trust it? I have to give it to Jerry Buting and Dean Strang. Like, they're very convincing defense attorneys. Like, Chris and I commented on that several times while watching the documentary in prepping for this episode. Like, they are damn good defense attorneys, and they went after this lab yeah. tech. And honestly, like, in all, like, it was the control. Like, and for people that don't know, like, you have the main test that you're doing and the control just to make sure all your chemicals and everything were right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that the part that, that was testing to make sure the chemicals were right is the thing that fucked up, not the actual test. And the DNA that was commingled was her DNA. So right. It's not like it was somebody else's. Yeah. So I don't know. But like they went after her and they were damn good attorneys. Like I would hire them in a heartbeat. Like they were very, very good. Stephen Avery's blood was found in six places in the Toyota RAV4, and his touch or sweat DNA was found on the hood latch of the RAV4. Stephen did have an open cut, which was photographed during the investigation. So we have a source of the blood, too, a likely source. Stephen's defense countered this evidence by claiming that he was framed by the police. The evidence from his 1985 case was given to the defense. The box of forensic evidence had not been resealed properly when the victim's fingernail clippings and hairs were sent for additional testing in 2002. The seals were broken and replaced with clear tape that was not dated, which is against protocol. So, yes, they messed up this evidence, okay? Um, I did listen to a podcast where they have um, some people that were not really involved but were close to this case. And they basically say, like, this was the third appeal on this rape um, and attempted murder case. And no, it's not an excuse, but 
they probably weren't that worried about preserving the evidence anymore because this was like 18, almost 18 years later. And it was yet another like right. Hail Mary and stuff. It's not an excuse, but for whatever reason, it was not handled appropriately. Inside the box was a purple top tube of Stephen's blood. According to the defense, a small puncture hole on the top of the tube is proof that someone used a needle to extract Stephen's blood. Hey, 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 guys, guys, guys this is my best part. Like, I'm going to have some stuff to say. Okay. Here's the thing. We're nurses. <laughs> so this to us was automatically like, wait a minute. You didn't know that's one of those newfangled vacutainer tubes that through osmosis <laughs> gets the, bl- the blood from your vein into the tube. No punctures at all. Like, okay, people that aren't in the medical field, if you've ever seen people get t- blood taken, you get a needle stuck in your arm and there's a little, like, tuby thing that comes off of that needle. And then you stick the tuby tubes on top of it and they're, they have a negative pressure in them so they draw the blood out. But in order to do that, part of that vacutainer punctures a little hole in that rubber top of the tube. Oh, my God. Like, when I heard this and they're like, oh, yeah, that's proof that it was the blood taken out. No, dumbass. That's proof that blood was put in. Right. Like, that is a normal part of getting your blood drawn. A vacutainer requires a hole be punched in the top of the stopper to deliver the blood into the tube. The nurse who took Avery's blood was present to testify that the hole in the top of the tube came from the process of drawing his blood. This was not evidence that it had been tampered with. Okay. Yeah. And on the, if you guys go to the website, Gina has a very good picture of what's called a butterfly needle. This is what they use to take blood. Like if in normal settings. And you like you'll see this plastic part, which is called the vacutainer, and there's a little, um, it's kind of like a needle inside a, of there, and that's what they push these tubes onto. So that's got to go through the topper to deliver a, it. It is literally a needle. Like I don't know about you, but I've been stuck by one of those because I was dumb once. But that's my point. Is like. You can see it. That's why I put pictures so you guys can really understand when you push that tube in there to get the blood, it's going to puncture the top. There's no way not to. Um, If there had been two puncture holes, I'd say, okay, maybe. But there's not. There's one singular puncture hole right in the middle, which is where it would be. And these tubes are self-sealing. So, like, it's made out of a material that will seal itself. Or else the blood would come back out. You know what I'm saying? Right. And honestly, if you try to use a vacutainer tube more than once, you, you lose that seal. Mm-hmm. The state also involved the FBI to test the blood stains for the presence of EDTA. So EDTA is a preservative. So when you're, you get blood drawn and they're in these purple top tubes, there's a preservative in there to keep the blood from like clotting so that it can be tested. So it can, yeah, so it can be spun. And all the other good stuff. The only ones that don't have stuff in it is the red tops. Right. And red so, tops is basically straight glass. And that's it, that's called EDTA. So they test for it. And they had only tested for it one other time. And that was for the famous O.J. Simpson trial. So the only reason you would test for EDTA is to prove the blood wasn't planted. That's why it's not used very often. Right. Um, so 
If positive, this would support Stephen's claim that the blood found in Teresa's vehicle was from the purple top tube because there'd be preservative in it. If it came out of his finger, it's not going to have a preservative in it. The testing comes back as negative, indicating the blood was not from the purple top tube. There was no preservative in it, which after now 20 something years since it was originally taken, there would definitely have been preservative right in that and now we have to add into okay i'm going to kind of dive into like an offshoot right now okay so not only like now we're into the realm of people planting stuff and people out to get stephen avery manitowoc county calhoun county fbi right like because the fbi had to plant evidence now don't you know that? Right. The FBI loves planning evidence. And his defense does suggest that the FBI was complicit in this right. frame job. And if you listen to, like, if you watch, if you've watched Making a, the Making a Murder documentary, it sounds like that's, what, like, even the, like, as much as I like the defense attorneys, they were really pushing for, oh, the FBI did it. They're damn good at their job. I'll give them that. The FBI, oh, the FBI had to, had to have something to do with this. There's no way that, that that blood couldn't have had EDT. And then they go on to say that, oh, that well, that's uh, that was the old test you guys did. Can you run it on the new one or something to that? Well, effect? and they basically say that it's junk science and it's not. there's not validity to it and blah, 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 blah. But you can tell, like, there's tests that run that you could right. tell that when there's chemicals and shit. And we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit more, too, later. Um, so during the trial, the defense questions the officers from Manitowoc County who were involved in collecting key pieces of evidence against Stephen Avery. This is a problem. Yep. I am not going to sugarcoat it. Despite what I think or don't think, they should never have been there. The prosecutor, Ken Kratz, counters by explaining that they were upstanding officers who were not directly involved in Stephen Avery's false confession in, or conviction rather in 1985. One officer who was involved in finding this key evidence was the officer who took the call in 1995 from the Brown County, suggesting another man had confessed to the crime that Stephen was in prison for. However, the prosecutor points out, like, on surface, that sounds really bad, right? But the prosecutor points out that the officer wasn't even an officer for the, for the sheriff's department at that time. He was a jailer at the county jail. And he wasn't a detective. He took this call and said, let me transfer you to the detective. His part basically stopped as soon as he transferred that call. He was not somebody qualified to do anything with that evidence. However, he did fail to file a report on this call until after Stephen Avery was released in 2003. And then he went back and wrote a report about it. And so the defense says that that's that he was trying to hide it, but there's so many things wrong. Like I don't give a shit how upstanding the officers that found the evidence were. You were told that Manawak County was not doing the investigation, right? So you are hands off at that point. But yet, you continue to like it. Just puts so much. I know. Like it, it leads, it adds into it gives, that reasonable doubt a little bit. It gives the defense attorney 
a fucking field day. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, the only thing I have to say, though, is, okay, yeah, it's weird. Maybe it's weird he didn't write the report. If he just kind of transferred a call, I could see why you wouldn't. But my whole thing is, why did he go back in 2003 and then write the report eight years later? I don't think he was trying to hide anything, because if he was, he wouldn't have wrote that report at all. Because that's the only reason that they knew this call even happened. So, I kind of disagree that him going back and writing the report eight years later was to cover his ass. I don't necessarily believe that, because if you wanted to cover your ass, you wouldn't say anything at all. Right. So, I don't, I don't know about all that. But the defense also plays a call from the officer to the dispatcher. Now, this is a little creepy. This same officer calls the dispatcher and he gives the license plate number of Teresa Hallbach's vehicle. The defense says that he did this because he was looking at the vehicle, basically suggesting he found Teresa's vehicle before it was found on Stephen Avery's property and he called in the plate number. And so they're they're using this as suggestion that he planted the evidence, okay? So that he had to have been looking at it. But he tells them, he testifies that he was not looking at the vehicle when he made that call. So I don't know if maybe he's like, hey, I need you to run a plate for me. And he gives them the plate number and they say, you know, this comes back to a missing person, Teresa Hallbach. And he's like, it's a 99 Toyota RAV4, right? And, he, and the dispatcher's like, yes. And he's like, okay, thanks. Do they do that if, like, they had just listed the APB on the vehicle or something and they were just making sure it was in the system right? I, I don't know. I don't know. This I was don't... something that bothered me, though, about the first time I watched Making a Murder. This bothered me. But I can't, I, I don't know what to make of it now. Right. I, I don't know what, to, I don't know what the reason that he would have to run a plate that he's not looking at. Because normally that's when you have plates run. Right. And you that's know, what the defense said too. But then like, would you, if you had just put the APB out, would you call it in to make sure that it was going to be functioning? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know what to make of that for sure. Records also show that on the day the car was found, the other officer from the Manitowoc County was present and possibly had access to the vehicle. The defense stated that this provided the opportunity for the officer to plant Stephen's blood in the vehicle. The two officers were the two who found the key after a couple of searches on this property. So they're saying these two officers who did this really sus stuff are also the ones who found this key. So is that not suspicious? It It is a little bit. I'm not going to lie. There's things about this case that certainly aren't great for me. And they do start to poke holes a little bit. A little. Um. But what's important to know, too, is when the key was found inside Avery's trailer, there, yes, those two Manitowoc County officers were there, but so was a Calumet County officer present, too. This officer states that he was busy, though, and he was not directly watching the Manitowoc County officers. So did they plant that key? Dean Strang and Jerry Buting did a phenomenal job of defending Stephen Avery. So much so that viewers of Making a Murderer were fully convinced of his innocence. 
There were certainly lots of concerns about this case. The evidence from the 1985 did not appear to be properly preserved and secured, and officers from Manitowoc County were involved in an investigation despite an identified conflict of interest. They did a great job defending. I'm not going to give them that. But a lot of people thought he was innocent because of the way everything was presented. Oh, I agree. Making a murder was... They didn't tell you everything, for sure. Like, there was a lot of stuff left out and a lot of bias put towards it. You know, like, hell, they're not going to... They're trying to make something that people want to watch. They don't want to watch something about somebody that's been convicted, you know? Yeah. I get that. So, yeah, I mean... Did they do a good job? Um, yes, they did. But it was a very biased. It, it very, was. Very, very biased. It was. The totality of the evidence jur- was presented to the jury, and the jury found Stephen Avery guilty of first-degree murder and possession of a firearm. They acquitted him on the charge of mutilation of a corpse. According to the Avery family and the defense, this was sort of their way of splitting the baby, because according to them... There were certain jurors putting pressure on other jurors, and they didn't all think he was guilty. I don't know that there's any truth to that. On June 1st, 2007, Stephen Avery was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In April of 2007, Brendan Dassey went on trial. The primary evidence against him was his own confession. Despite the fact that he told several different stories and many aspects of his confession did not line up with the evidence in this case, such as... If they slit her throat and stabbed her, there would have been blood in the trailer. He was found guilty on all three charges against him. First degree murder, mutilation of a corpse, and sexual assault. One of the major pieces of damning evidence against him was a call recorded um, while he was in jail that he made to his mother. And in this call, he confesses to the murder to his mother and Stephen's involvement, even though he later recants this. Like, he tells his mom that he did it in this phone call. And so that to me was a little disturbing too, because if he was just telling the officers what they wanted to hear, like his first confession, and then he immediately denied it to his mom, this call does bother me. It does. I'm not going to lie. If I was on that jury, I'd have a hard time overcoming that. Brendan was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 40 years. Following the convictions of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, both filed numerous appeals. Stephen claimed ineffective assistance of counsel, calling Strang and Buting incompetent to the press. I have called bullshit on that. He had damn good attorneys. Yeah, that was a bullshit. Like to say to the press that they were incompetent? Are you kidding Dude, me? Dude, most of America thought you were innocent. Right. After Making a Murderer premiered on Netflix in 2015, Stephen became somewhat of a celebrity. At the time, he was engaged to an elderly woman who wrote him while he was in prison. She announced on national television, however, that she had ended her engagement to Stephen Avery due to religious differences. So, following his engagement to this older woman, he gets engaged to yet another supporter. She later ends their relationship after appearing on the Dr. Phil show. She later told Dr. Phil that she broke up with Avery after he sent her horribly threatening letters and made threatening phone calls from prison to her. She eventually had to get a restraining order against him, and she now states she believes Stephen Avery is guilty of murdering Teresa Hallbach. 
This aligns with statements given by Jody, Stephen's former fiance at the time of the murder. So you've got his first ex-wife, you've got Jody, and then you've got this second fiance since he's been in prison, all of which who he's written threatening letters, made threatening phone calls, verbally and physically abused. Like he has a pattern of violence against women. Following the sensational Netflix documentary, famed defense attorney Kathleen Zellner took over Stephen's case. In season two of Making a Murderer, Kathleen Zellner takes turns pointing the finger at multiple people for the murder. I did not like season two of Making a Murderer. I'm going to come out and say that right now. Season one was compelling. It was biased as hell. And once I learned more about the whole case, I had a different opinions, but Season one was at least entertaining. Season yeah. two, I did not like it. Kathleen Zellner basically just takes turns blaming other people for this. First, right. she says it was their neighbor. But then she rules that out. Um, she They gloss over it. But basically, an expert basically tells her to retest this blood for EDTA is a waste of her time. So basically, they're saying there's no EDTA in this blood. So then she says that when Stephen cut his hand, he bled onto his sink. And when he went to bed and woke up the next day, somebody had cleaned it up. So then she's suggesting that somehow police got into his, his trailer, knew he cut himself and left blood and took his blood and planted it. Like it just gets so more and more far-fetched in my opinion. Once an expert tells her, you know, that this is not beneficial. She comes up with this alternative theory the testing, all the testing she does fails to exonerate her client, though. So then she points the finger at Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, and Scott Taddock, Barbara's husband and Brendan's stepfather. She claims that violent pornography was found on Bobby Dassey's computer, and she presents multiple theories of the crime, but doesn't have much evidence to back up these claims. Like, to me, the whole second season was just her throwing out possible other suspects but no evidence to really back that up other than apparently he had some violent disturbing pornography on his computer but this was also the computer brendan dassey had in his house and i don't think stephen avery had a computer it's not impro impossible that this could have belonged to this pornography could have been downloaded by stephen avery we don't know that i mean you don't know who downloaded it right the only evidence that I found interesting, though, was a witness who supposedly came forward to Kath Kathleen Zellner and claimed that he saw Teresa's vehicle on a nearby rural road and reported it to police before it was found on the Avery property. This officer that he reported it to was the same officer who had called that license plate into the dispatcher. That's a little compelling to me. That that made me think twice a little bit. You know, if he's saying he saw this vehicle, he told this officer, this officer called in this plate. Okay, that's weird. The documentary does not provide a name, though, of this person or any evidence of who this person is. So I have no way of knowing, you know, any validity to this claim. And as far as I know, it's never been publicly announced either. Zellner constantly makes social media posts hinting at all this new evidence but nothing in the documentary supports any substantial evidence of anyone else's guilt or Avery's actual innocence in this case. 
In 2009, the prosecutor in the trial, Ken Kratz, was accused of sexual harassment after sending a series of sexually natured text messages to a domestic violence victim that he was representing in prosecution against her attacker. So he's kind of a skis ball. Um, Ken Kratz lost his position as district attorney, his reputation, and his law license was suspended. He did write a book about the Avery case in which he discussed the evidence that was left out of making a murderer. Ken Kratz also voices regret for a press conference he held after taking Brennan's confession in which he described Teresa's death per this confession in graphic detail that was not fully supported by evidence. So here's the thing. Is Ken Kratz kind of a sicko? Yeah. I mean, when you sexually harass multiple women, especially a domestic violence survivor that you're representing. Right. Who the fuck? Right. But that doesn't make Stephen Avery any less guilty. You know, like I, that doesn't prove that he did anything wrong in Avery's case, in my opinion. Attorneys for Northwestern University Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, Stephen Drizen and Laura Nyrider took over Brendan's case. They claim he was coerced into providing a false confession without special consideration for his age and his limited mental capabilities. I agree with that. 100%. Me too. Furthermore, his first attorney was ineffective by allowing the investigator to gather evidence to support the prosecution and allowing Brendan to be questioned by police without his presence. Yeah, his first attorney was a piece of shit. I agree. Me too. In August of 2016, a federal judge ruled that Brennan's confession was coerced and granted him a new trial. The state of Wisconsin appealed and won a motion to keep Brennan in prison until the outcome of this appeal. In 2017, a panel of three judges heard the state's appeal and affirmed the ruling, indicating that Brendan should be freed and given a new trial or the charges against him should be dropped. The state of Wisconsin again appealed and Brendan was forced to remain in prison until this appeal was decided. In December of 2017, a seven-judge panel voted four to three to uphold Brendan Dassey's conviction. So all of that, and they upheld the conviction. Four to three, not like a landslide. Right. His next appeal, filed in 2018, was also denied. And that was the final appeal available to Brennan Dassey. So he remains in prison. I feel bad for Brennan Dassey. They did him so fucking wrong. Yep, I agree. To believe the theories presented by Stephen Avery, you have to believe that the police not only found Teresa Hallbach's vehicle, but also her charred remains and somehow knew they were hers, planted all of this evidence on Stephen Avery's property, also somehow knew his gun, took a bullet from it, and got Teresa's blood on it and planted it in his garage. Additionally, the police had to have sources of Stephen's blood and sweat as they planted the evidence. In the original trial, the defense said that they were not accusing the police of murder. Therefore, like I said, you have to believe that Teresa's bones somehow were found. They knew they were hers, as well as her cell phone, belongings, and even the rivets to her jeans. And planted that. I mean, that seems highly unlikely that anybody could have planted that much evidence against Stephen Avery. 
Kathleen Zellner, who continues to fight for Stephen Avery's freedom, suggests that Bobby Dassey killed Teresa on a rural road close by the Avery property and then planted the evidence. To believe this theory, you have to believe that Bobby Dassey, who was a teenager at the time of Hallbach's death, killed her, left no trace of his own DNA, and would have successfully planted the evidence, including his uncle's blood and sweat. Teresa's mutilated body, the rivets from her jeans, and her personal belongings, all on his uncle's property without anybody noticing. I mean, that just doesn't seem plausible to me. So this is where I'll put my opinions in now. I believe Stephen Avery is 100,000% guilty. I concur. I have no doubts that he is guilty. Brendan Dassey, another story. Do I think Brendan Dassey knows about this crime? Yes. Do I think his uncle talked to him about it? Yes. Do I think that his uncle invited him to the bonfire that night and maybe had Brendan help him destroy the body? Yes. Do I think Brendan was an active participant in the actual murder? Not at all. No. I think Brendan's probably guilty of helping his uncle cover it up. Yeah. I do believe that. I believe that he was guilty of that under duress though this is a man who was molesting him and abusing him you know and like everybody says in in brendan's defense you know that he was a little bit of a slower kid he was easy to manipulate yeah i think stephen avery manipulated the fuck out of him i do believe stephen avery should be in prison for the rest of his life Brennan Dassey, I believe that that confession was coerced, even if there is some truth behind it, even if he did know parts of this story, which I think he did because it led to more evidence. But I do think he was done wrong and I do think he should have another shot. I don't think that he's guilty of murder. I don't know. That's my opinion. I don't think he's guilty of murder either. I mean, like you said, there's so much... For me, it's the him not being able to tell a single time, like more than once, a story, like the same a confession. Story. Mm-hmm. Like his confessions were all over the place. I and think he knew that, about things, but I don't think he was an right. active participant. I, 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 I think Steve Avery, like you said, was a hundred percent the murderer. A hundred percent did everything, but unfortunately, Brendan Dacey, what like. He got caught up in it. Yep. Because he was easily manipulated. Like, hell, the cops showed that he was easily manipulated. Yep. I mean, when you look at the confessions, the recorded confessions, they're manipulating him right there. Right. And I mean... This kid didn't know know what the hell was going on when he was being interrogated. No. You know, it's now been 18 years. So he's been in, Stephen Avery's been in prison for this crime now for 18 years, which he says he didn't commit, whatever. I personally would not be upset if Brendan Dassey was released now on time served. Do I think he knows about this crime? Yes. Do I think there's parts of this stuff that he's helped cover up? Yes. Do I think that he participated actively? No, I do not. And whatever he did do, I believe was under manipulation and probably threats from his uncle oh he was definitely under duress definitely dolores avery stephen's mother and one of his biggest supporters passed away from dementia july 8th 2021 according to stephen's family the pain and mental anguish of stephen's arrest and incarceration contributed to her decline in health stephen's niece the one who had accused him of molesting her 
filed a restraining order against Stephen Avery in 2021. So even from behind bars, there have been multiple women that have filed restraining orders against him. Which shows you just how big of a piece of shit he is. Exactly. Exactly. So do you think Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey are guilty? Did Teresa Halbach get justice, the justice she deserves? Did the state of Wisconsin prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? What are your thoughts? Uh, do I think Stephen Avery did it? Yes. Brenda Dacey? Or Steve, no. Like, he knew something about it, but no, he didn't do it. Like, he didn't actually perform the murder. Did Teresa get the justice you deserve? Yes, but now it's being televised. Well, and her like, poor that's... family has to watch this. And, like, these people that just watch Making a Murderer and are, like, gung-ho right. that he's innocent. Like, what about... the? Imagine what her family has to go through watching that. And right. all these people supporting him when I think there is more than enough evidence to prove that he did this crime. Right. And I know we have, we're going to piss some listeners off because we're taking this stance. But I thought he did it even back when we saw Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm like, and I, I, like my, with this evidence, like with all the new stuff that you've brought to the table, it didn't change my opinion. Steve Avery did it. Brendan Dacey was an accomplice or not an accomplice but an accessory to after the fact probably like after the fact but fuck like no like you need to stay in jail like i would love to see brendan get a new trial yeah me too. and the murder charge is taken off and he's let out with time served it it doesn't look like it's probably going to happen though he's probably going to spend his entire adult life in prison right. or a majority of it anyway and for the like, did the state of Wisconsin prove the case beyond? Yeah, they did. I think they did. Now, I'm not saying there was not problems with this case. Oh, there was a lot there, of problems. There were some case. definitely some fuck ups with this one. In Manitowoc County, they really fucked up. They should have just backed the fuck off. They should have backed the fuck off when they were told to. And like they said, the uh, the other county that took over the Calumet County. Yeah. Like, they even said, oh, yeah, we had a guy with him, but I wasn't paying attention. Fuck. Like, shoot yourself in the foot even more. Right. You know? Like, they're lucky that they got the conviction and they didn't have a jury that was, oh, well, hey, wait a minute. Like, there's a lot of things. Like, because there's a lot of things that are like, that's, sus- that's suspicious. Right. That's suspect. And I think for me, one of the things that bothers me the most is before he's even really a suspect, he's already shouting that he frame job, frame job, frame frame job. job. It's a frame job. They did. They posted. They put all that shit. Now, would you be paranoid if you had spent 18 years in prison for a crime you didn't commit? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you would. I would be. But to instantly start shouting. But to instantly go to frame job when you don't even know that they're going to find something there. If you're truly innocent, you would assume they wouldn't. Right. And he says that's why he let him search the property because he knew he was innocent. Well, then why are you already shot at shouting frame job? Right. My personal opinion, I think Stephen Avery thought that with all these depositions happening in early October, And realizing what had happened to him and how he had been wronged. Because they did wrong him in 1985. They ignored evidence and they laser focused in on him. 
I think it pissed him off. And I think his anger grew as these depositions were going on and he was realizing how dirty this investigation was in 1985. And I think it pissed him off. And I think inside his head, his girlfriend's in jail, so she's not there. And so, again, that kind of brings the point of why would you buy these restraints when she was in jail and she wasn't getting out for a few months yet, but okay, sure. Um, And I think in his head, he thought, well, with this lawsuit going on, nobody is going to believe that I'm guilty anyway. They're going to believe it's a frame job because everybody loves me and he's been, you know, shaking hands with the governor and all this shit because he's an exoneree. I think he, honest to goodness, didn't think they would arrest him for it for it i think he thought he'd get away with it because of his exoneration that's my opinion and brendan dassey is just a victim right i mean i think he was drug into this because steven's manipulative and needed some help getting rid of the body and i think that he coerced and threatened his nephew to do that and then turns his back on him when the shit hits the fan yep but tell us what you guys think Definitely. Um, I have post, post. a shit ton of references and <laughs> pictures on the site. Um, so head on over to www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. If you think I've got this wrong and Stephen was done wrong, tell me why. And don't just quote making a murder because I got plenty of evidence that right. that is one sided. So if you think I'm wrong, yeah. bring it like I'm not arguing with you i'm telling you i want to know why yeah what am i missing when this gets posted we'll take it to the take it to onto facebook and tell us why we're wrong or like what we what we got right with it right like did you guys know half of the stuff that gina you know posted today and like she said if you guys want more information go to www.themidwestcrimefiles.com on all the links for references are posted on the bottom of the story guys it's like 10 o'clock at night and we're recording i'm <laughs> this is our longest episode this is our longest ever episode. i mean we're going at almost two hours of record time so but yeah and if you guys feel like you guys like our podcast go ahead and maybe become a patron and go over to patron.com slash midwest crime piles and you can go there and get some exclusive content like they just did yesterday they got another episode yes about a good samaritan killer but I think on that note, guys, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I love you. You're probably tired of listening to us at this point. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye.